been, uh, been working hard to get through this, this book, uh, doing a couple chapters at a time. This, particularly this last section with Joseph's story is just such, such a big, epic narrative. It's hard to break up into small parts. So um, we'll slow down, I think, a little bit next week as we get towards the end. But yeah, there's a lot there. Uh, if you've got the Pew Bible this morning, we're going to be on page 41. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 46. And if you have any questions as we go through the text, you can go to slider.com and type in RevCDA in the prompt, and we will take a look at those at the end. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we are... Um, We are people that that often are just aware of our inadequacies. We're aware of the fact that that we we make bad decisions. Um, We are confused. We are ignorant. We don't know the right answers. uh, And and we desperately need your voice. We desperately need your wisdom and your guidance. And God, there there are many people in this room today and just as many stories of both confusion and fear and, and just crying out to you, but also that of you meeting those needs, of you showing up and giving uh, blessing and direction and wisdom and clarity. God, we just want to be thankful for that. Fill our hearts with gratitude for the fact that you have promised to never leave us or forsake us, that in Christ we are yours, you care for us, your word says, as the, the apple of your eye. And I just pray as we, we look through this text this morning and, and just talk a little bit about the feeling of, of a plan gone sideways, um, I just pray that you would speak to us by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So do you ever have a... Um, a location that you, you kind of know how to get there, but you turn on the GPS anyway, just to make sure. I have, for the last several years, traveled to uh, Camp Tadmore in Lebanon, Oregon. It's where we're all going to go for men's roundup. It's the big Church Venture Northwest camp in southern, southwest Oregon. And uh, earlier this year, I went to a pastor's prayer summit there. It was a group of pastors from our association all getting together for two days to just spend time in prayer. And it was really, really beautiful and good and a blessing. But on the way there, I've driven to Tadmore enough that I know I, can, I know how to get to Portland and then I make the turn and go down. But, but I always want to make sure, so I put my GPS on. And I didn't look at it until really I left Ritzville. Because that's where it gets a little sketchy for me. I-90 is, I'm, I'm solid. But then when we start to get into those other highways. So then I pulled up my GPS. And I find that it is freaking out. Hey, you need to turn around. You are going the wrong way. Make, a, make an exit here and then go back five miles and then go under the freeway. And, and I was like, what are you doing? And I thought, maybe, maybe there's an accident up ahead. And it's trying to warn me. But I just thought, I don't know, that seems weird. And so I kept going what I thought I knew. I think this is the way. I know know where I'm going. And I'd pass another exit and it would go, rerouting, rerouting. And then it would send me around some other way. 
And the whole trip down there, it just kept telling me I was going the wrong direction and that I needed to change my direction. And it was really, really frustrating because I thought I knew where I was going. It was hard to be told that I needed to go a different way. When I, find, when I stopped to uh, eat lunch, I dug around and found that somehow it had been set to like not use any highways. <laughs> so, so it was trying to get me there using like residential roads, uh, which was why it was so confusing. But man, the process of like being told to change directions when I thought I knew where I was going was hard to deal with. And when we get asked to go on detours, we can be confused, it can be distracting, it can be annoying. But sometimes as God is moving us through life, he sends us on detours. And the detours that he sends us on are not deviations from the plan, they are actually the plan itself. Roads that seem to be the opposite direction of where we know that he said we are going turn out to be the roads that he wants us to take. And maybe, maybe you relate to this. You believe that God has given you a calling or an opportunity or a vocation. You've prayed and you've, you've felt like the Lord has said something really strongly to you about something in the future. You've been given some kind of supernatural direction from God's spirit, and yet it doesn't seem to be happening. Maybe it's going slowly or, or you seem to be moving backwards or these doors are opening that don't seem to be in alignment with what you thought was supposed to be the case. So this morning, I want to talk about how we're supposed to think about that as people who are committed to following the will of God for our lives. The reality is, and we've seen this over and over and over again in Joseph's story, that this is an overarching narrative about God's sovereignty, God's, God's ability to direct the events of history for our good. And when God's sovereignty gives us a detour, I think we can see that as an opportunity. We can see that as an opportunity to obey the Lord. We can see that as an opportunity to witness. We can see it as an opportunity to mature our faith. And we can see it as an opportunity to hope. So those four things we're going to take a look at, opportunity to obey, opportunity to witness, opportunity to mature, and an opportunity to hope. So an opportunity to obey. When is a detour an opportunity to obey? At the beginning of chapter 46, we see Jacob, Israel, come to the realization that his son Joseph is alive and he's being invited to come to Egypt where there's food. His family is in the land of Canaan where they're supposed to be. God has promised them the land of Canaan, has promised descendants, has promised a nation, has promised blessing there, but things aren't working out. And there's this opportunity to leave the promised land and to go to Egypt. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you know that there were several other times when Jacob's ancestors went to Egypt out of fear, out of disobedience, because they weren't trusting in the Lord. It looks better down there, so we're going to leave where we're supposed to be and go to this place, and this must be going through Jacob's mind. Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, was promised this land. His family is inhabiting it, and now I should leave? Really? 
This is a circumstance where Jacob needs to hear the voice of God. And we see this happen. This is the last time that God speaks to one of the patriarchs in Genesis, but he gives Jacob the assurance that he needs to know that this detour is part of the plan. Look, God says in this section, I will make you into a great nation there. This isn't some like, oh, shoot, I, I, God messed up. We got to change what's going on. It's no, no God is saying, I, I promise to make you a great nation. And the way that I intend to do it is by moving you to Egypt. God isn't pausing the plan. He's not changing the plan. This is the plan. Have you ever really thought that God was leading you somewhere and then something comes up and it feels like it's really derailing what you thought? This can be really confusing. And in that moment of confusion, you need clarity, you need direction. You need to hear from God. And God knows that we need this. Gordon Wenham writes about this section. He says, such a move as Jacob is undertaking requires divine sanction. The more so in that to leave Canaan is to retreat from the promised land. Without divine approval, such a move could seem like unbelief. Jack Deere says about this kind of decision-making, he says, the clearer the revelation, the harder the task. In fact, the clarity of the voice may well be the main thing that gives you the power to endure the subsequent testing. And the reality is, is when we have big decisions to make, when there is a detour in the path that we're not sure about, we need God to show up in a really powerful way and speak words of truth and comfort to us. Oftentimes, because we're gonna get down that road and the enemy is going to work doubt into our hearts. And he's going to say, hey, you know, you didn't really listen to God. You really shouldn't have done this. And we're going to need that word from the Lord to go back to and say, no, actually, this is what God said to do. And so this is what God grants Jacob. He gives him a vision. Now, I've never had a vision. But for Jacob, he gets a vision because this is a big question. Do I deviate from what I thought was the plan? I don't want to be disobedient. And God shows up and speaks to him. And I think we, I think we misunderstand this about God sometimes. We think that, that hearing from the Lord is meant to be hard. A couple of weeks ago in, in youth group, we were playing charades. And I'm, I'm just, I'm so bad at planning games for youth group. I usually make Karis do it. But we didn't have any games planned. And so we we're like, oh, let's do charades. And then we didn't have any prompts. So it's like, okay, you're up to do the charade. Make up your own prompt. And it was awesome because the kids in youth group were so great. Like the prompts were so easy. <laughs> like one of the kids was like, okay. And everyone's like, rabbit. <laughs> like, yes, that's it. How'd you get it? Like, okay. <laughs> and I think, I think sometimes we think that like, like when, when God speaks, we think that the prompt is like the second law of thermodynamics or the invisible hand of the capitalist free market or something. And oh, I don't know. And, and it's like 10 words, first word, and, and the timer's going to run out. And sorry, you just aren't going to know what God means to tell you. Bummer. But that's not how God treats us. That's not how God loves us. Psalm 103 says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows what we are made of, remembering. <laughs> remembering that we are dust. Don't, don't let yourself believe the lie that God is 
intending for you to fight to hear his voice. That he doesn't really want you to know, that he wants you to struggle. And if you, if you don't get it, too bad. If you're in a place where you're struggling to discern God's will, go back to the basics. Get in the word of God, read your Bible, pray, worship with God's people, seek the counsel of godly Christians. And those decisions just have a way of clarifying when we just trust that God is going to speak to us. And this isn't just for when things are hard either, right? Like Jacob is experiencing this famine in his life and he's like, man, there's, there seems to be a solution that looks good, but it doesn't look like it's part of the plan. What do I do? It can also happen when things are going great. In, in the book of Acts, in chapter eight, Philip, who's one of the first deacons in the church at Jerusalem, he travels to Samaria to share the message of Jesus with the Samaritan people and multitudes of people are getting saved. There's just this huge, uh, it's not a revival, it's a vival of, of, of life, right? The, the life of Christ is being poured out on these people in this amazing way. And look what God says. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then the narrator, Luke, puts in this parenthesis, this is a desert road. And you kind of want to go like, wah, wah. Like there's this, this amazing thing going on, God. I'm in the middle of this uh, just work of your power. Yeah, and I want you to leave. I want you to go in the desert. And, and what, he gives Philip an angel, like an angel of the Lord comes to speak to Philip. And, and if you follow on, we won't get into it, but that story results in this amazing fruitfulness where he gets to preach the gospel to the um, Ethiopian eunuch and, and, and bring the message of Jesus down south. But we have an opportunity when God presents us with a detour to listen to hear his voice, to get clarity. But then no matter how God chooses to speak, we also have to obey. And this is what we see next. We see in verses uh, five through seven, Jacob leaves Beersheba and he goes to Egypt. And then we get this great section. And thank you, Bryn, for reading all those names so I don't have to. This genealogy, right? And, and we, we, we struggle with genealogies because they're weird, right? Like, I don't care. What is this about? But the thing about this genealogy is that it's, it's telling us something about the decision that Jacob makes. If you, if you notice, like it, it says at the very end that 70 people went down to Egypt. 70 is the, one of the ways that the biblical authors talk, authors talk about perfection, completion, totality. And a lot of uh, theologians have commented that depending on what names you leave in and what names you leave out, you can get a lot of different numbers out of this genealogy. The point of the genealogy is not to specify in what we would consider absolute scientific terms how many people went to Egypt. The point of the genealogy is to get to the number 70 because the author is trying to tell us that Jacob took God seriously and he obeyed. He didn't leave anybody behind. He could, have, he could have. He could have said, hey, Issachar and Dan, why don't you guys stay here and guard the land just in case anything goes wrong? Want to be sure, you know, we want to hedge our bets a little bit. He didn't do that. He said, God said go, and he took his entire family with him. God's detours offer us an opportunity to be 100% obedient and not hedge our bets just in case. And this is what it means to walk by faith. And a good question for us is, are you living in such a way that God has to act 
or things will go badly? Do you put yourself in situations where you can walk by faith? If God doesn't show up here, we're doomed. Or do you just live like God is just an accessory, part of your totally put together life? And Jacob has that choice before him. Are we going to trust God with everything? And he takes his whole family down to Egypt with him. God's detours give us an opportunity to obey, but they also give us an opportunity to witness. God's detours put us in a place oftentimes to witness to the world. When, I, when we first planted the church in 2018, I was working at the Salvation Army Croc Center. I was a, a director there, which meant that I had a lot of meetings. And um, the kind of work that I did was pretty exhausting at the period of time that we were in with the church plant because I, I took off my croc hat and I put on my church planter hat and it was a lot of the same skill set and I got, it was really tiring. And I did it for about six months and, and then I got an opportunity to leave the croc center to go work for a production company that just edited wedding films. I, I do video production. And, and so I got to be hired at a nine to five job where I could show up, sit at my desk, do my stuff and then leave and not care anything about like the inner workings of the company or anything like that. And, and, it, and I took that job for a time and it really freed up a lot of my brain space to, to give to the church plant. But what it also did was it put me in a room full of uh, 20 something video editors that didn't know Jesus. And I got to make relationships with people that I never would have at the Croc Center. And I got to tell them about my faith and invite them to church. And, and they would ask me questions about the way I lived my life because it was so weird to them. And it was a really great opportunity. And this plays out in Jacob's family as well. And it plays out in two ways that I want to look at. It plays out in rejection and it plays out in respect. And we see this quite a few times in the scripture. I want to point to one section in Acts 5. In Acts 5, the church has just been born and amazing things are happening. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. And you think, Luke, you just said two things that don't make sense. You said no one else dared to join them, and then all of these people became Christians. But if you've lived for any amount of time in the church, you kind of feel that way, right? Like there's gonna be people that accept the message of the gospel and then there's gonna be people that reject the message of the gospel and it's pretty stark sometimes. We get back to Genesis, we see in chapter 46, verses 33 and following that, that Joseph tells his family, I'm gonna bring you in front of Pharaoh and I want you to tell Pharaoh that you are shepherds because Egyptians hate shepherds. <laughs> like, that's a tactic. Um, and, and then we see in 47 that, that uh, this is what happens, right? We're shepherds. It might be that the Egyptians don't like the vocation of shepherding, but it's more likely that shepherd is kind of a um, substitute word for a racially motivated distaste for the nomadic tribes in Canaan. Um, there's, there's a lot of evidence that during certain periods in Egyptian history, the, the tribes all around Egypt were largely nomadic, were largely herdsmen and shepherds, and they were often kind of a pain to the Egyptians. And, and it created this cultural distaste. 
And this is actually the justification later on for how the people of Israel should treat foreigners. In Exodus 23, God says, you must not oppress a resident alien. You yourselves know how it feels to be a resident alien because you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. You could also translate that sojourner or stranger or foreigner. And obviously this, this prejudice by the Egyptians is totally amped up by the time we get to Exodus when they're enslaved and the Pharaoh begins to commit genocide against them. But this section here hints at the things to come. The kind of people that God's people are, are detestable to the Egyptians, the people in the world. And in one sense, Joseph is being tactical. He's got a very tactical mind and he's trying to, to get Pharaoh to allow his family to settle in this pasture land called Goshen. It's what would be best for their people, but it also admits, it also means that they would admit that they are outsiders that they would proudly claim their vocation without being ashamed of who they are. And if you're a Christian here this morning, if you are committed to the way of Jesus, the reality is, is you will be rejected by the world. There will be people that just do not like you because of your deepest identity as one of Christ's people. Jesus says this in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. And this is the reality of the Christian church. We are going to proclaim the exclusivity of Christ. Jesus is the one and only way to the Father. We're going to live our lives in opposition to the world's sex ethic. We're going to advocate for the unborn and the elderly. We're going to speak out against violence and greed, racism, and the dehumanization of people. These are the characteristics that we find in Jesus, and we as his people are going to be like him, and we will be hated for it. And Paul says in Romans, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. The message of Jesus is hope for the world and we are called to not be ashamed of that message. We're called to stand up whenever we get the opportunity and, and when, when Pharaoh asks, who are you and what do you do? We're supposed to say, hey, we're, we're Christians. Even though we know that maybe that's not a really great way to you know, make friends and influence people. We're Christians, this is who we are. It's funny, I've been, I, I don't want to say I'm part of this group. I've just been kind of like, I keep getting invited to it. But there's a, a nonprofit called Interfaith CDA that's just sprung up in town. And, and I've been to a, to a few of their events. And it's really interesting. It's, um, I, I've, I've shared it with some of you, but like the, there's, there's Christians and there's, um, and there's Mormons and there's Buddhists and there's some Baha'i. And it's just this really interesting group of people. And I've really enjoyed getting to know them. But there's this, this tendency among some of the people that, you know, we should all just like recognize that we're all the same. And, and we should just like, you know, support each other in our sameness. And, and I, I had to speak up at one point and go like, but we're not the same. Like we can be friends, but we're not friends if we can't admit that we're all totally different. I said to the one guy, like, your people send teenagers to my house to tell me to convert to your faith. Don't tell me we're all the same. <laughs> we represent completely different com claims about the nature of ultimate reality. 
I am convinced that Jesus Christ, who is the second person of the eternal triune Godhead, is the Lord of all the earth, and we owe our allegiance to him. And not everyone is going to like that. And maybe you're here and, and you're, you're, you would say you're not a Christian this morning. And that's okay. I mean, you're welcome to be here. You're welcome to learn and to ask questions and to offer critique. Because Jesus gives us this commitment to love you just as much as we love one another. But we have to recognize that, that we have different commitments. And sometimes that deepest identity is going to mean we're rejected by the world. But we also see here that this witness is one of respect. In chapter 47, verses 7 through 10, Joseph brings Jacob to the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh seems kind of smitten by Jacob, that he's this incredibly old man. He asks him, how long have you, how, how many years have you lived? And, and Jacob says 130 years. And he kind of, um, he has this real humble view of all that he's accomplished and suffered. And there's this very interesting thing at the end of this section, Jacob blessed Pharaoh and departed from Pharaoh's presence. The, the thing is, is the greater person blesses the lesser person. And Pharaoh is the God of Egypt. He is the ultimate highest authority in Egypt. And he allows this old man to say a blessing over him and place himself as his superior. Pharaoh respects this man because of who he is and what he has suffered. It's interesting, Paul gives Timothy instruction on appointing elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And elders are not super Christians. They're not like a special category of Christians, but they are Christians who serve as an example to the church. We should all aspire to be people whose character is reflected in the elder qualification list in 1 Timothy and in Titus. And in 1 Timothy 3, 7, after listing a whole bunch of character traits, Paul says, furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. Commenting on this, Thomas Leah says, when church leaders live in such a way that unsaved outsiders refuse to listen to their message, the devil has clearly lured believers into a trap. Christians must realize that unbelievers scrutinize their actions with a searchlight of fault-finding investigation. Paul's implied appeal is that church leaders give no opportunity for unbelievers genuinely to find fault. As an elder in this church, if, if my name is associated with greed or anger or slander or malice or lust or dishonesty by those out in the community, then we're, we're in trouble. I'm, I'm not leading you well. Because it is required of me to have a good reputation among outsiders. And this is something that we see all throughout Christian history. And I, I love to geek out on Christian history, so I'm going to read you a couple things. Uh, Pliny the Younger, who is the governor of Bithynia, which is in Turkey, around 112 AD, he's writing to Emperor Trajan about these Christians. He doesn't know what to do with them. And he says, um, he's, he's trying to, to explain his, his tactics. And he says... He's talking about the Christians. He says, they were accustomed on a certain day to meet before daylight and to take turns reciting a song to Christ as if to a God and to bind themselves in a sacred oath, a sacramentum. Not in any criminal act, but that they would not commit theft or robbery or adultery and that they would not break faith and that they would not deny a deposit when it was due. 
When these were finished, it was their custom to separate and come together again to share a meal, entirely common and harmless. But this too, they brought to an end after I posted my edict, by which, according to your orders, I prohibited the existence of clubs. From this, I considered it all the more necessary to determine the facts, and so I interrogated two female slaves who were called deaconesses through the use of torture, but I discovered nothing other than depraved and excessive superstition. What Pliny is struggling with is the fact that these men and women in his community are such model citizens, and yet Christianity is illegal, and he doesn't know what to do about it. And he's, he doesn't know a lot about the Christian faith, so he investigates, and even, he even um, kidnaps and tortures two deaconesses to find out the facts, and he finds out that all of these Christians get together every week, and they swear an oath to each other to be really good people. And they eat food, but it's like normal food. <laughs> and, and so Pliny's like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and Trajan writes back and goes, yeah, you should, you should keep doing what you're doing, which is killing them if they don't recant their faith. So on the one hand, the Christians are rejected by the community. But on the other hand, Pliny doesn't really know why, because they're such good citizens. Emperor Julian, about a, a 200 years later, in 362, he's writing to a, a Roman priest and he says, for it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. He's complaining that the Roman cult uh, uh, apparatus, the priesthood, is so bad at its job because the Christians come in and they don't, eat, they don't just support other Christians, they support the whole community's poor. And he's like, we gotta stop this. They're making us look bad. I love that. <laughs> like, would that that would be our reputation today. When God makes detours in our plans, we have an opportunity to witness. We need to have an opportunity to show a watching world who we belong to. We also have an opportunity to mature. In the next section, in 13 through 27, we see that the people of Egypt become slaves of Pharaoh through Joseph's economic reforms. It's, it's super, like, this is not a model for, like, running a government, I don't think. Uh, we, we would read this and go, like, that sounds pretty awful, but at the same time, we see the shepherds and Jacob's family in Goshen acquire property and grow. And, and the language of Genesis 1 comes out here. They are, they are fruitful and they multiply, right? They're, they're fulfilling the mandate that God has given to humanity. And we see that Egypt is an incubator for the people of God. It's a place of safety and it's a place of refinement. They will be safe here for a season while they grow, and then they will suffer here and become a people that cries out to Yahweh for their salvation later on in Exodus. And obviously what this reminds us of is the Nile River crocodile. I mean, you could have laughed. That was kind of funny. <laughs> Crocodiles uh, cannot get out of their eggs like birds. Birds have a little tooth in their beak that they use to chip open their eggs. The thing with crocodiles is the crocodile matures in its egg and it starts to yell. It starts to chirp. It starts to cry out to its mother. 
and its mother, this animal that has the most powerful bite in the world, pound for pound, picks up these eggs in its mouth and uses her tongue to kind of roll them around against her teeth. And she gently cracks them and lets the young climb out of the eggs and she carries them down to the river in her mouth. And I think that's this really beautiful picture of this incubator that is Egypt for the people of God. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you the people that birth the one that is going to fulfill the rescue plan for humanity. You're going to be the centerpiece for everything that I do in the world. But you're not ready yet. You're not mature enough. You haven't learned everything that you need to know. Their time in Egypt is going to shape them in a, into a people that is ready to take possession of that land. They're going to mature and then they're going to be delivered from Egypt under Moses by this powerful display of God's power. And this is going to become the defining characteristic of the Israelite people moving forward. Every year, the Passover feast is celebrated as a reminder that the Jewish people are the people that God rescued, the people that God pulled out of this slavery that God loves and cares for his people so much that he birthed them out of Egypt by his power. And I wonder if that is not sometimes our story, that, that God has something planned for us and in his goodness and his grace, he's told us what it is, but we're just not ready for it yet. We aren't mature enough. The first time I wrote in my journal that I was feeling God's call to plant a church was in 2011. We didn't plant Revelation until 2018. And as I look over those years, I realized that, that I needed a greater understanding of God's word. I needed a better understanding of the practical way of Jesus. I had patterns of sin in my life that needed to be brought out into the light and be repented from. I also needed my younger daughter to be born and have her life added to our family dynamic and, and to be strengthened by her presence in our home. I'm really glad that we didn't plan a church in 2011. It would have been bad. Because we weren't ready. Because ultimately, we as God's people are being trained to rule and to reign with him in his kingdom. Dallas Willard says, a major element of this training is, experiencing in, is experience in waiting for God to move. Not leaping ahead and taking things into our own hand. Out of this waiting experience, there comes a form of character that is priceless before God, a character that can be empowered to do as one chooses. This explains why James says that patience in trials will make us fully functional or perfect in James 1.4. Detours in the plan are the means that God uses to transform us into people that can actually carry out the rest of the plan in the future. Lastly, this morning, detours in the plan are an opportunity to hope. Starting in verse 28, we, we read a little bit more about Jacob. He lives for 17 years in Egypt. And I just love that he spends 17 years with Joseph, the same amount of time he had with Joseph when he was a boy before he lost him. I think that's, that's nice. <laughs> God just does nice things like that. But this, this detour doesn't change Jacob's understanding of the promise, right? He knows it's only a detour. 
God is going to be faithful in what he promised. He's going to make them a great nation in the land of Canaan. And he says, when I die, I want to be buried in the promised land because that's where we're going to end up. Paul writes in Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. And this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Notice the progression that Paul makes. It's, it's a way of framing our journey into maturity as Christians. Affliction, endurance, proven character, hope. But he says, we start living our life in Christ with hope. It goes along with faith. It's this desire to live differently than we are living now. From mired in sin and shame to adopted and redeemed by the Father. But that hope progresses through affliction, endurance, and character formation to become a deeper, more settled hope because we have a track record of experiencing God's love through the Holy Spirit. Look how this happens in Jacob's life. Way back in Genesis 28, we read, the Lord was, Jacob has just fled from his brother who's trying to kill him, and he is sleeping on a rock, and he has a dream, and the Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out towards the west, to the east, and the north, and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. A few verses later, then Jacob made a vow. If God will be with me and watch over me during this journey I'm making, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. The stone that I've set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give you a tenth of all that you have given me. So notice, we talked about this when we were going through this passage, but notice Jacob's heart. God shows up and says, this is what I'm going to do for you. And what Jacob says is, well, if you do, I'm going to give you money, <laughs> right? Like he's so twisted that he takes this unconditional promise from God and he puts conditions on it because he's not quite sure. And I think what we see here is we see that hope. We see that, that first, well, I don't know you, God, but, but I, I hope what you're saying is true. But then over the rest of his life, he experiences affliction and endurance and his character is formed. We've seen it over many chapters in this book. And this formed character settles into a deeper hope where he can say, Joseph, when I die, I want you to bury me there. Because that's what God promised. And these detours, I think, offer us an opportunity to maybe experience a little confusion, to maybe experience a little affliction, to maybe feel like, man, I don't really know what's going on here. But it's an opportunity to walk through those seasons to have our character formed in such a way that the hope that we have that maybe God will come through turns into a settled trust that absolutely God is going to come through.
God's sovereign detours are our opportunities to obey, their opportunities to witness, their opportunities to mature, and their opportunities to hope. When God directs our path in a way that we don't expect, we can doubt his goodness, we can question our ability to hear his voice, or we can just get frustrated. Or we can begin to see that this detour is actually part of the plan and God is going to use it in the process of transforming us into men and women that have the character of Christ. Let's do some questions. I wonder if shepherds in the Bible are similar to how cowboys were in the 19th century and had a bad reputation of being lawless and bandits. That's a cool thought. Yeah, there's probably some similarity there. Hmm. Some of it is probably um, deserved and some of it is undeserved. And, and, you know, isn't that the case with our reputation as Christians, right? Oftentimes... Christianity gets a bad rap because it's misunderstood, because people who are, don't know any Christians just learn about Christians through TikTok or whatever. And that's, that's a real scientific way to, to get knowledge. Um, but then also sometimes Christians are jerks, right? And, and you, you, you realize like, oh, I really, I really displayed the name of Christ in a really unhelpful way. This is the, the first phrase of the Lord's Prayer, right? May your name be honored as holy. Like, his name is holy. It's, it's the thing that we're doing that, that decides whether people are going to honor it or not. Yeah. We have an opportunity to um, be a part of what people on the outside of the church understand is true about Christians. And I, I hope that we take that seriously. Jake, thanks for putting your name on it. That's great. The text frequently switches between the names Jacob and Israel. Is there an explanation for that? Do you want us to call you Israel? Is that what you're asking? <laughs> yeah, uh, man, there's a lot of words that have been spilt on that question. And it's hard to find an exact, um, uh, an exact uh parallel as to why Moses does this. In this section, um, one of my commentaries mentioned that Israel is used in reference to his time in Egypt, um, maybe kind of as a, a method of connecting Jacob's story as a human being to the nation story at, who had just, remember when, when the first audience is reading Genesis, they've just left their time in Egypt out of the Exodus. And, and so they're, they're forming their identity as a people. And so for Moses to use the name Israel is one of the ways that he can make a connection to the people that he's writing to, that this is your story. And so some people have said that that's what's going on there. Um, but again, throughout the book, it's kind of inconsistent. Sometimes it's Jacob, sometimes it's Israel. Um, it might just be sometimes, you know, we'll write and we change words because just for like poetic flourish. Like if you took English class and you know, you use the same word over and over and over again in your essay, your teacher would be like, you gotta find some synonyms. So it could be some of that, um, but as much as there is a theological reason, it probably has to do with identifying the people in the audience that's reading this and hearing it read with the character of Jacob. So yeah, good question. Genesis 32. 
I'm turning there. That is, that, yeah. So that's when, that's when he wrestles with God, right? And the gift that God gives him is he changes his name to Israel, the one who wrestles with God. But then it goes back and forth after that, right? So, so he has this moment with God where he's kind of um, fully trusting for the first time. Remember, like Abraham had his name changed. Sarah had her name changed. A name change is pretty significant about it, when it talks about life transformation. Um, but then... Throughout the rest of the story, it doesn't say his name is Israel the whole time. It, it changes back and forth, which is kind of confusing. Yeah, but that's a good, good point. That's, that's when that happened. We're going to um, take communion this morning, as we always do. Um, when you read in the Gospels, as Jesus gets closer to, his, to the end of his teaching ministry, he begins to talk about his death, and his followers don't like that. There's several times when, when they're pretty upset that he's talking about it and they ask him to stop. They have been promised a Messiah who's going to bring freedom to their people, that he would rule the earth on the throne of David forever, and dying seems like an impossible detour to the plan. And it turns out that what they thought was a change in the plan is actually the plan. Jesus reigns from heaven today and will one day reign on the earth forever and his enthronement and exaltation as king happened on the cross. And so when we celebrate communion, we are celebrating the enthronement of our king, God's eternal plan of redemption. And it's a reminder of it every week in the bread and the cup. And this is, this is the meal that the, the Israelite people identified themselves by. They're, they're being rescued out of Egypt, the Passover meal. Jesus reshapes it to be a meal that reminds us of our rescue by Christ on the cross. We can look back on that supposed detour in the plan and see clearly that our salvation is bound up in his death and resurrection. We are given life by his grace through his death. And so if you belong to Jesus, as you come and take communion this morning, come up and, and take the bread and the cup. There's, there's wine and juice per the dictates of your conscience. Back to your seat. Take a few minutes to think about the detours in your life. Maybe, maybe they're detours that have happened in the past. Maybe they're detours that seem to be happening right now. And hold them up to that detour that Jesus' first disciples experienced. Spend a few minutes in gratitude for the cross. Thank God for his faithfulness in the midst of these detours that you are going through right now and, and recognize that, that as much as he has your ultimate salvation planned out and how strange that path looked, he's got your day-to-day -day planned out as well and he will be with you and faithful to you as he leads you through it. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.